Well, it is good to be back with you all today. I, we were gone the last couple weeks, and I hope that you um, enjoyed and appreciated the teaching of our friend Wilf, who came to speak to you the last couple weeks, uh, taking you through the rest of Psalm 119. As well, I hope that you were able to, many of you, finish the Psalm 119 challenge with a bang. So uh, if you didn't, I know I have to admit myself, I finished about three days late, so it's okay. <laughs> if you're still working on it, go ahead, keep plugging away. It's great. It's worth it to get into God's Word, dig into it, meditate on it, and the rewards, and just to be continually nourished by it are beyond belief. So pray you're doing that. Today I'm going to take you to a little book in the New Testament towards the end of the Bibles that we're going to hang out, and we're actually going to be here for a good number of weeks, and I have been really looking forward to taking you through this book. It is packed full of great stuff. I think you'll be excited about what it has to say. I think you'll be challenged by it, and I think that it will help us grow more as a church and as Christians who want to do God's will in our lives. Please turn with me to the book of James. book of James is after the Timothys and Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. You find James, and it's before 1st and 2nd Peter. That's where you'll find it. We're going to be here for a while, so get used to turning here. As we jump into this fascinating book together, though, I'd like to pray for us. Ask God to be here, be working on our hearts, in our lives. Okay, would you pray with me? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work among us as we look into your word. In all of our hearts, please be growing us to be more like you. Help us to see wondrous things in your word that would... Um, just just open our, our eyes to it. Help us to apply it. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I've got a special treat for you. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. <laughs> okay? Ready for your pop quiz? <laughs> your heart just skip a beat? <laughs> Maybe get a little bit nervous. All those students are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've got enough exams at school. I don't need them at church, too. <laughs> well, don't, don't worry. You can rest easy. I'm not actually going to give you a pop quiz today. But I'm going to talk about pop quizzes. Or maybe I should more appropriately say surprise tests. You know when a professor or a teacher catches you by surprise at school and it gives you a spontaneous assignment where you have to very quickly and spontaneously show how much you know or how much you're learning or developing in a certain subject. These tests are unexpected. They can be scary, intimidating, and very challenging because it tries to get our minds on the spur of the moment. And even though they serve a purpose, I don't blame you if you don't like them. They're, they can be challenged. Did you know, though, that, that in Scripture, many things we go through in life are sometimes called tests? You know that? They are. And certain times in our life are called the testing of our faith. Life can catch us very off guard. It doesn't happen the way we plan. It can Things can happen very suddenly, abruptly, quickly. And we can end up much like we are in pop quizzes, scared or intimidated or in very challenging situations. Or worse, we may end up scarred, beaten down, even destroyed by these tests. 
Today in God's Word, we're going to see how God wants us to respond to these tests that happen in our lives really much more often than we'd like, but perhaps we should want them to happen more often than they do. Before we get to today's passage that's going to talk to us about the testing of our faith, I want to give you a brief introduction to the book of James as a whole. James has been a favorite book for many Christians for a long time. Arguably, it's probably the most practical book in the New Testament. Much like Proverbs would be in the Old Testament, James is like that in the New Testament. Focusing on what it means to apply Scripture in our lives. Imperative or action verbs appear more frequently in James than in any other New Testament book. James is filled with wisdom, with instructions on pleasing God, with good advice. It also has many word pictures, which makes it really fascinating to read, and illustrations that James uses to describe how things work. Another thing that makes James interesting is the theological issues it brings up. Some of you may know there's some pretty major theological issues that have sprung board out of the book of James. And we'll dig into these as we go along because they are very important. But as we get into James, let's read the first verse. That's going to tell us a bit about the author as well as the audience. Read with me in James chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this tells us the author is a man named James. We know of three major Jameses in the New Testament. Two were disciples. One was the brother of Jesus. The most famous the, the, one, the James of Peter, James, and John in a sailboat, you know that childhood song? That one, he was John's brother. He was actually martyred extremely early on in the history of the church. Very soon after Jesus ascended into heaven, he was killed. So it was most likely not him that wrote this book. The other disciple, James, son of Alphaeus, was likely not well enough known to write this book. And so by process of elimination, that leaves us with the third James, the earthly half-brother of Jesus. And there are good reasons to believe that he was the author of this book. So what do we know about this James? Who was James? Well, he would have been one of several physical sons born to both Mary and Joseph, okay, after Jesus was born. There's an interesting passage in John 7 where Jesus' brothers tried to exploit Jesus' ministry for their own ambitions of fame. And in John 7, 5, it says that not even his brothers believed in him. Interesting. Not even his brothers believed in him. It's believed that James, this man, didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus actually died and rose again. He needed to see that in order to believe. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus actually made a special appearance to James after the resurrection. Interesting, though, that here when we come to the book that he wrote, James doesn't identify himself as Jesus' brother, but as his servant. As his servant. Much like, if you remember a few months ago when we went through the book of Jude, another brother of Jesus, how he identified himself. James identifies himself here. James realized that his primary relationship to God was as a servant. The spiritual was greater than the physical in his mind. And so that's James. After his conversion, James quickly became a leader in the church in Jerusalem, eventually becoming one of the first pastors in Jerusalem. 
James was known to be a very devoutly faithful and righteous man. His nickname was James the Just. It is said that he followed the law as close to perfection as he could. He was very devout in his faith. Legend tells us that he fell to his knees in prayer so often that he actually lost feeling in his knees. Tells you a little bit of picture about him. It's believed he wrote this book in the mid-40s A.D., which would have made it one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. James was eventually martyred for his faith, much like many of the early Christians. He was martyred for his faith in the year A.D. 62. The religious leaders of the day decided to try to get him to recant his belief in Christ. So they took him to the highest point of the temple and said, okay, tell us you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ. And when he wouldn't do it, they threw him off. And then, for good measure, just to make sure he was dead, they stoned him once he was on the ground. Pretty crazy. But it shows his wholehearted devotion to Christ as his Lord. So that's the author. How about the audience? Read with me verse 1 again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So that tells us the letter was primarily addressed to Jewish Christians, and hence the 12 tribes. It makes sense when you consider that James was the pastor of Jerusalem, where the church would have been mostly made up of Jews. Now, the Jerusalem church had a very unique situation. It's one of the only churches that in the very early years of the church was scattered. Most other churches didn't have this issue. In Acts 8, Verse 1, immediately following the stoning of Stephen, it says that, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And so hence, that's what he's talking about with the dispersion, or spread out around the world. This will be very important as we consider the hard situations that people found themselves in that James wrote to. In fact... That's what going to be a big part of how James begins his book. He starts by talking about how Christians are to go through trials in life, which makes complete sense once we know who he's writing to. Let's read verse 2, which can be pretty shocking at first read. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, my brothers is a term that legitimately means my brothers and sisters here, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The first two words of this verse really tell us the main application of the whole passage today. Count it, or consider it in other translations, specifically specifically refers to our perspective. Our perspective, our viewpoint, our attitudes, how we see things. Our perspective in life, I think, is way more important than most of us give credit for. A common cliche says that perspective is everything. And there's some truth to that exaggeration. During World War II, General Creighton Abrams found himself and his troops surrounded on all sides by the enemy. But his perspective changed everything for his troops. He told them, For the first time in the history of this campaign, we are now in a position to attack the enemy in any direction. (laughs) 
Sorry, I don't know how the story actually ends, but (laughs) perspective is everything. And James tells us right away that he first wants to address a Christian's perspective in life. But he focuses on perspective on a specific time of life, and that is trials or difficult seasons, hard times. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then in verse 3, we see where James calls it a test, that we're going through a test when we go through trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The fact that he says trials of various kinds shows that he's not singling out one type of hard time. The NIV says when you meet trials of many kinds. Trials are don't come in one shape and shade and color. The early Christians that James was writing to would have had it really tough. Imagine, okay, put yourself in their shoes for a second. Imagine that you had to move away from Ottawa or even Canada or wherever your home was or is because the hostility against Christianity became too strong. Imagine having to do that. And you'd have to start a new life in a new town or a new country, find a new job. You'd have to learn how to live possibly in a new culture, learn a new language potentially. Maybe your family would be with you. Maybe they wouldn't be. Don't know. And whether or not you ever experience anything like these Christians, as a Christian, you will face trials. You will face trials in life. And you will face different types of trials at different seasons of life. It is a fact that this will happen. And for a season, for example, you may end up impoverished or needing money or food desperately. Maybe your job will be taken away from you, your source of income. Another time, you or a loved one may become very sick or even die. That's a very tough time of life. Maybe you'll go through a time of depression or loneliness, persecution, rejection. The list of ways that we could suffer in life is so long. It really is. And James would say here that in any kind of trial, anything that tests you, that tests your faith, your perspective is crucial to your spiritual health. Now, the perspective that he tells us to have is what is most surprising. This is not what the world or self-help seminars would tell you about hard times. They might tell you to grieve or to sympathize or to buck up or to strengthen your resolve. But God tells us here through James to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. He tells us the right perspective to have during hard times is joy. Of all things, joy. Now, James means more than simple pleasure or happiness when he speaks of joy. It is a deep-seated, ingrained rejoicing in our spirits. That's what he means by joy. And when James says, count it all joy, he's not telling us that's the only feeling we can feel. The Greek word for all here gives the idea of intensity, not exclusivity. In other words, be intensely and overwhelmingly joyful, not only joyful. 
This means we are to count it all joy, even when it's not all joy. We can be sad. We can grieve. We can mourn. We can suffer in every sense of the word. You are allowed to feel those things. Joy is not the opposite of sadness. Joy underlies other feelings. It's a foundation to build upon, of rejoicing. In the midst of these feelings, we are told to consider the testing as a good thing, as a thing that ultimately brings you joy. Say you're a scorekeeper at a hockey game. As painful as hockey may be right now, (laughs) considering last night, but, okay, think of yourself as a scorekeeper in a hockey game, and a player shot a puck at the net, and your eyes told you that it hit the post and stayed out. Okay, that's what you thought you saw. But the ref on the ice had a better viewpoint, and he saw the puck trickle over the line, and he told you, count it as a goal. Okay? And you say, well, but it wasn't a goal. That's not what I saw. And he'd answer, count it as a goal anyway. Because you as the because he has a better perspective than you, and you know what? That goal would count as a goal just as much as any other goal because you as a scorekeeper would regard it that way by marking it on the score sheet. It's a goal. Now that situation on a cosmic scale is similar to what God is telling us to do. We see a trial come up in our life and we think this is terrible for us. This is horrible. And then God comes in and says, count it all joy. We think, but it's not all joy. It's not all joy for me. And he says, count it as a joy anyway. Why? Because I have a better perspective. And that doesn't mean that it's easy to do this. Not at all. It is hard to feel joy. If you have, say, fertility problems, or you lose a child to a miscarriage, it's hard to feel joy as you see your parents or grandparents deteriorating in health. It's hard to feel joy if your family opposes or even rejects you because of your faith. It's even harder to feel joy when a trial drags on, much longer than we think it will, months, even years hard to feel joy. But that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to see things from his perspective. And I'd say that's really the key to seeing our trials with the the right perspective. It's like we're trading our own perspective for God's. We see things his way. And in the rest of this passage today, James is going to reveal to us some of God's perspective about the testing of our faith. We read verse 2 here and ask, how in the world are we supposed to count our trials, our suffering, as joy? How is that possible? It seems humanly impossible. And not just a little bit of joy. Intense joy. How are we to do that? Here's what the next few verses are going to tell us. First thing in your notes, in order to keep a joyful perspective during trials, we need to see the test in view of our growing in maturity. In order to have the right perspective of joy, we must see it in view of our growth and maturity. 
We have to see that testing our faith is growing in maturity. Read verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So it produces steadfastness. And that produces verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I have bad memories of a particular exam in university in a humanities course that I took. The thing was, I enjoyed the course a lot. I enjoyed the professor, enjoyed the teaching. I studied hard, went into the exam confident. But as I took the test, I was horrified because the exam was filled with questions that had hardly anything to do with what I had studied. And so I was like, am I even taking the right exam? This doesn't make any sense. And I got the worst grade I had ever received in a class in that class. But And when I would complain, I have to say I was able to take some extra credit to bring my grade up a bit. But that exam really made me appreciate ones that were much better written, ones that were appropriate and, and fulfilling. So, But I want to ask you a question, though. Why do teachers actually put you through tests in any kind of school? Why do they do that? All the kids here answer, because they hate us, <laughs> right? They want to make our lives miserable. <laughs> but as adults, I think we understand the role that tests play in our education. They help us learn. They help us grow, to develop our knowledge more fully. We don't appreciate the process, but we do appreciate the result. It's the same with the test that God gives us for our faith. But it's so much harder for us, it seems, to see the good that he's bringing about through them. And I'd say that the reason for that is because we don't have the right perspective. We don't see things the way he sees them. Our trials, it says here, produce steadfastness, which is also translated perseverance. This word has the idea of remaining under something. And like we have to carry something for a long distance. And it's very easily tied into our suffering because our trials often seem like a burden to us. It seems like we're carrying something heavy. Interesting, though, that the very thing we need to endure trials is actually produced by the trials. But we see here, steadfastness is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is perfection. In verse 4, it says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You might ask, aren't we supposed to strive for excellence instead of perfection? Or maybe, isn't perfection impossible? Well, yes and no. In many areas of life, we should be striving for excellence instead of perfection. But when it comes to our Christian lives, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we should be striving for perfection. That doesn't mean we'll achieve it, at least in this life. That's the impossible part. But moral perfection is to be our goal. God says, as in several areas in the Bible, to be holy, for I am holy. Or be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our aim, that's our goal. An impossible goal for us on our own and in this life. But 
a goal that will be achieved one day in heaven through Christ and through his perfection. But through our trials, James is saying, we keep going towards that goal through our trials. We keep growing towards that, growing in perfection. Our moral maturity keeps growing. That's why I phrased it the way I did in your notes. Becoming more mature. An anonymous quote says this, In adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job when he wants to do an improving job. To realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. As we go on in this passage, verse 5 to 8 are really some of the most taken out of context verses in the Bible. Read them with me. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Recognize some of those verses? I think we tend to yank these verses out, especially the first one, and apply them as an absolute promise to anyone at any time, anywhere. You don't have wisdom? Ask God. He'll give it to you. But in the context of these verses, the testing of our faith, going through hard times, this topic is surrounding these verses. So what does that mean? Well, I think it's telling us we need wisdom most in those hard times. You even see how verse 4 ties into verse 5. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 5 it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In other words, wisdom should be one of the main areas we're growing in through trials. And if we need wisdom in all kinds of life, and we do at all times, I'd say we most desperately need it. When the going gets tough. We most desperately need wisdom then. We need to know how to stand firm in our faith. How, when to fight for our faith. When to flee. We need to know how to deal with the horrible situations that happen. Or how to respond to persecution or loneliness or suffering or poverty or death. How do we respond to that? God said, ask for wisdom. I'll give it to you. We're going to look more at wisdom when we get to chapter 3. But I want you to glance ahead. Just skip ahead. I think it's probably about a page. This gives us an idea of the type of wisdom James is talking about. James 3, verse 13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. Excuse me. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That tells us the type of heavenly wisdom James wants us to have. And did you notice, though, that this wisdom is very practical? It's not just up here. It's very practical. It's more than just knowing things. Wisdom 
has to be the right application of knowledge. That's wisdom. Now, as we read, read those verses a minute ago, you might think James is being pretty harsh with people who doubt. <laughs> like a wave of the sea, double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Yikes. But basically, I want to say this. James is telling us to take this seriously. We need to believe in God's generosity to us. We need to believe that he will give us what we ask. He will give you wisdom for your trials if you ask for it. Just like he will give you salvation for your sins if you ask for it. It all goes back to faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. We have to have faith. And if we can't even please God without faith, then come back to James. Why should we expect to receive anything without it? We have to have faith. It's crucial. Now, when it comes to trials, seeing our increasing maturity and growth in holiness is good, but it is not the only change of perspective we need. There's another perspective that I believe that is even more important. It's more powerful, more fully the perspective of God. If that's part of it, this is more fully. And this is what we're going to see in the last few verses we'll read today. In your notes, that in order to keep a joyful perspective during trials, we need to see the test in view of the coming eternity. In order to maintain a correct viewpoint of suffering, we have to remember that eternity is coming. Let's see where I get this idea from. Verse 9, down to verse 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the first part of those verses could be really confusing. You read that carefully? Verse 9. But the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) What does he mean that the lowly should be excited about being exalted and that the rich man should be excited about being humiliated? Lowly people aren't excited. Rich people are hardly ever, or lowly people aren't exalted, and rich people are hardly ever humiliated. But the confusion comes because we're thinking on earthly terms. James is thinking heavenly. These things don't happen very often on earth. But how does he continue? Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is thinking ahead to the end of people's lives where your earthly position doesn't matter anymore. 
Low are made high. High are made low. And this would have had special meaning for James' audience, as it's believed that as these Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, spread around, many of them tried to get new jobs working for wealthy people as basically bond servants or slave labor. But instead of being paid for their job or having good working conditions, they were being exploited, abused, not paid, taken advantage of in their situation in life. So as James wrote these words, it would have been very heartening to them, very encouraging. And James uses the illustration of grass flowers or wild flowers withering in the sun. In Ottawa, grass doesn't do too much withering, as we have a lot of precipitation here. Where I grew up, though, in California, summers were pretty different than here. Stuff didn't stay green. Okay, As the sun got hot, the weather was beautiful, but we didn't have much rain, and the sun would just scorch the grass. It got browner and browner. It started withering away throughout the summer. And the grass's life, though, it didn't try to stop growing. Its life would just ebb away slowly as the days went on. And in the same way, James says the rich here will wither while they keep pursuing things. Did you see that in verse 11? For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant, or withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In the midst of his pursuits. The race for more stuff in life never stops, does it? If you're young and think it's going to stop, just ask some of the older people here. They'll tell you. It doesn't stop. The desire to want more the need, the need to buy more things, to get the newer things, the better things, the more advanced things. And all that our stockpiles in life, our stockpiles of money or stuff, all that they'll amount to, one day will fit in an ashtray. Here's the point, though. Our eyes need to be on eternity whether we're rich or poor. If you're blessed with some riches along the way, be thankful for that. Be generous with that. If you don't have much along the way, be thankful for that. You have much more reason to look forward to heaven and to eternity and its rewards. But our perspective, no matter what situation we are in in life, needs to be fixed, needs to be trained on eternity. And when we look at eternity, our earthly struggles become very, very small. Those who go through trials will be especially rewarded, James says. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life alone, don't know exactly the exact description he's talking about. But it will be a greater reward than all the riches you can imagine on earth. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
So we've talked about trials today and testing of our faith, suffering. You might be thinking, this doesn't seem quite fair to me. If I'm being a good person in life, if I'm following God, why should I have to go through trials? Why should I have to do that? And indeed, the question of why righteous people suffer can be perplexing to us. It's a hard question to answer. It's interesting that James doesn't answer the question here. But he does imply that suffering is under God's sovereign and all-wise control. It's under his control. If you do have some of these questions about how God and suffering can go together, we've got a great Sunday school class we talked about earlier uh, that happens before the service. Looking at the question of God is good. Why is there suffering and evil? Why does this happen to me? So I'd highly recommend you set time aside if you have those questions. But I'd say this today. If we only see things in our limited, finite, and temporary viewpoints, if we only see things that way, we will never understand the place of suffering in our lives. I also don't think we'll grasp the amazing role of suffering in our lives until we realize the suffering that Jesus went through for us. You thought about that before? Thought about your suffering in light of his? We celebrated this early around the Lord's table. Next week, we're going to once again look at the testing of our faith and, and the tests that we go through in life. But we're going to look at a much more sinister form of testing. As James goes on, he doesn't talk about the multiple kinds of suffering that we face in life, but he talks about the testing that comes from temptation and from sin. The suffering that comes from that. See, all of us have been cast under that suffering that comes from sin. We are all tempted to sin, we have all fallen into sin, and we will all die because of sin. And the ultimate result of sin is eternal death, bearing God's wrath against sin. But here's the good news that's overwhelmingly better than all the bad news. Jesus, through his suffering, through his death, through his dying on the cross for us, bore God's punishment for sin. He took our suffering. The church father, Augustine, says this, God had one son on earth without sin, speaking of Jesus, but he never had one without suffering. And by his suffering, we can be freed, we can be healed, we can be saved. Tim Keller says that the cross tells you what the reason for your suffering isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love you, that he has no plan for you. It can't be that. Have you recognized God's love for you? Shown most dramatically through Christ's suffering for you. Shown in and through our own suffering. He grows us to be more like him. Shown through his eventual triumph over suffering forever. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forsaken us in our trials. 
He became like us. If you've never accepted his love, you must do so today. If we use James' illustration, your flower may wither and perish tonight. We don't know. Are you prepared to go into eternity as you are right now? If you'd like to talk more about this, I'd love to speak with you. It's the most important thing you could do in your life is to live it for him. Let me pose a question for all of us, though, as we close. When the tests of faith come, and they undoubtedly will, are you ready? Is your perspective going to be right? Will you be able to see the joy in the pain? Because when it happens, it won't be as easy as it sounds today. It won't be easy to see things the way God sees them. It'll catch you by surprise. You'll have to react quickly. It may be like those pop quizzes that surprise us. Are you ready? When you go through these tests, though, I pray that you will grow through them. To be more like Christ. To be more holy. To be more wise. To be more mature. And I pray that you will see the rewards that are waiting for you in eternity. Because that changes everything. Don't just wither away like dead grass. Because we will all pass away. But those who have Christ will live again and flourish forever. Let's pray. Lord, prepare us prepare our minds. We don't know when we're going to go through these things. Many of us may be going through them right now. I pray for those people specifically. I pray that you would strengthen them right now, that you would give them peace, give them your joy, supernatural joy, because it's so hard to see on our own. We want to see things the way you do. But it's hard. Please help us. Empower us by your Spirit. For those of us who aren't going through this right now, but may maybe just around the bend or maybe years ahead, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, help us that when they come, that we run to you. We see things your way. We see them as joy, that we're able to count it as joy because we're growing more like you. We thank you for your blessings that you've given us. We don't deserve them. And we love you. In Jesus' name.